Let's get into the Word now. We're going through uh, the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, and in particular, the, one of the big reasons we're doing that is because there's kind of a general, I don't know, maybe you've gone across this, kind of a general consensus in the church that the Old Testament is kind of like the old, it's, maybe it's interesting history, but it doesn't really have a whole lot to say to us as New Testament Christians, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, you can't really even understand the New Testament without a solid understanding of all the foundations that are laid in, uh, in, in the Old Covenant. And in the book of Genesis, these first nine chapters, there are so many, found, the seed form of so many super foundational doctrines in, in, in order to understand the Bible, in order to understand the history of the world, uh, in order to understand all these things that are laid down here. And, not, and that is never uh, ever more so true as it is today when we talk about the Sabbath day and God's Sabbath rest. We tend to think of that just, when we think Sabbath, we probably usually just think go to church on Sunday. But I hope we're going to see today it's so much bigger than that. Uh, it's so much bigger and so much more beautiful than that. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, out of respect for the speaker who is God. I am only the reader here as God speaks to us to his word from Gen uh, Genesis chapter two. This is God's inerrant word. Let's give it our attention to it. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and we thank you for, Lord, just the, the amazing, majestic, panoramic sweep of your work throughout the history of the earth in bringing redemption to your people uh, and, and how it opens our eyes to whole new vistas of creation and reality that on a day-to-day -day basis we almost never think about. But all, there is a heavenly realm that is bigger and more real than the material realm in which we live. That is the true real. and We are really the true shadow, uh, as mind-bending as that is. And so we pray, Lord, you will help us to see the reality of the spiritual realm today, uh, of your rule as king over all creation, and ultimately, mostly, we pray that through all this, you would help us to see what it is that Jesus has done for us so that we might be as grateful as we ought to be. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When we talk about how we understand the Bible, maybe we would say, a lot of people would say we understand the Bible literally. Maybe it would be better to say we understand the Bible literarily, meaning that we do uh, understand that the Bible is speaking truth to us, but we recognize that there are different genres and different 
types of, of literature included in there, but we do, one of the things we confess is that we believe in a literal translation of the Bible, unless there's some other uh, good reason uh, or some other literary device that's, being in, that's operative that we can detect. Um, however, it's, you know, we're, we're humans, so whenever we take something good, like a literal reading of the Bible, it's also completely possible to do a hyper-literal reading of the Bible. Let me give you a couple quick examples of what I mean by hyper-literalism. The first, it seems to me, is something that's just inherent and, and like it's, it's like an archetypal knowledge in all children because my kids like learned how to do this without anyone ever teaching them. And that's the, the instance when one kid is being super bugged by the other kid, and the other kid's bothering them, the other kid, and one kid's saying, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. And the second kid's got their finger like half a millimeter away from their forehead saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. Uh, my kids are doing this just last night. One of my kids is screaming, don't touch me, don't touch me. And the other kid was saying, I'm not touching her. I look under the table. She's got her leg extended like this all the way across the table at, you know, at the in and out right next to my other kid's leg on purpose, right? She's taking a hyper-literal translation of don't touch me, uh, but completely missing the spirit of what the, what the other kid is wanting or what the other kid means, right? That's like hyper-literalism. Here's another example. We just bought, uh, we got our new refrigerator last year and there's a Sabbath button on our refrigerator. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is, you know, we didn't like buy it on like, you know, sale from Israel or anything. This is like at the Sears, you know, walked in. And I look at the, the control panel and it says, there's a button and it says Sabbath. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, what's that? You know, so I read, I looked at it. I was thinking it was like, so you didn't do any work, it would automatically pour water for you, and, you know, pour the, somehow, you know, you could just like look at it and it would pour the water. <laughs> no such luck. The Sabbath button completely disables the water in the ice machine. <laughs> so you're not tempted to work on the Sabbath by pouring yourself a glass of water. Same thing in Israel. If you go to visit Israel on, on, on the Sabbath, all the elevators and all the hotels go to an uh, automatic mode where they stop at every single floor so that you don't do the work of touching one of the buttons, right? You can, you know, you can imagine how, what that, how that works out if you're on the 27th floor of a hotel. Downtown Tel Aviv, you just got off your crowded flight. It's 11.30 at night and you're... Ding! <laughs> Ding. <laughs> I have a friend, Josh Gilod, grew up Orthodox Jew, and he said, he said it, he hated the Sabbath more than any other day of the week because it was just misery. He said we had to count our steps. I had to count my steps from my bed to my closet as I got like you know my. Uh, you know, his, his, his uh, Hanukkah and the different things that he had to wear. Uh, and he said it was just misery because you had to like put so much mental effort, <laughs> it put so much mental work into making sure you didn't do any work that it was just the worst day of the week, right? And that's, that's hyper-literalism. It's taking that idea of not working uh, 
and, and interpreting it in such a way that just completely misses the spirit or the intent of the beauty and the freedom that God wanted for us uh, in the Sabbath day. It makes it a drudgery. It makes it um, a day of boredom uh, and suffering and misery. What is the Sabbath day? Jesus says a couple things about it. Jesus says that, that you know, he says that the sap man, he said the Sabbath uh, is not made for man, but man is made, for, or Sabbath is made for man, meaning that the Sabbath is made to be a blessing for us. Uh, and so ultimately, really, the big picture, big picture is the Sabbath day, when we come to church on Sunday, we are participating in a foretaste of the promise of future eternal glory. That's such a, that's a huge, big concept, right? That's totally understandable. It's so abstract, we don't even know what that means. What does it even mean to participate uh, in a foretaste of our internal promise and glory? So what I'm gonna do is we're gonna go big picture to small picture so that we can understand what it is we're participating in, and then we'll talk about Sabbath day uh, for us and what that means for us. So we're gonna go from big picture to small picture so we can understand what we're talking about when we talk about Sabbath day and Sabbath rest. Okay, got it? Okay. So first, let's look at super big picture, God and the Sabbath rest. What is God's Sabbath rest? What does it even mean for God to rest to begin with? How is it even, I mean, does that mean, I mean, we, we believe and we confess that God is all-powerful, right? Does that mean that after the creation, he was depleted and needed to take a break and sit down and uh, take a nap? Obviously not. That can't be it. So what is, what does it even mean for God to be sitting in Sabbath rest? Uh, if you watched the la- the la- the, that last Oprah interview with the royals, with Meghan Markle, and, uh, or with, with Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. Remember that bombshell interview made like all the media as they were describing their experience, particularly Meghan, describing her experience on the inside of the royal family. And she said this one line that was like stunning. She said, and kind of like la- laid out exactly what, what had happened to this poor girl, right? She said, she goes, look, I'm from L.A., and you see celebrities all the time, right? What is she, what is she betraying that? She's like, I thought that, that British royalty was basically this multi-generational ultra-fame cult, and it was kind of the same as hanging out or being behind Brad Pitt in line at Starbucks. Completely misunderstanding, like, the nature and the history and the weight uh, and the gravity of monarchy, of Western European monarchy, uh, and everything that she was getting into, and because she didn't understand those structures or it was so foreign to her as an American, she didn't get it at all and was un- didn't even know what she was getting herself into. We do the same thing as Americans. When we read the Bible, we miss a lot, or a lot is un- not understandable to us, because it was written to a people, ancient Near Eastern Israelites, who were steeped in these illustrations of their whole life, uh, you know, was, was rich 
with images of kingship and royalty um, in a way that we as Americans who basically hate kings and hate the idea of anybody telling us what to do ever <laughs> don't get. And so we read this and we completely miss it in the same way that Megan missed what the royal family was all about. But if we were ancient Israelites and we read this, we would get what was happening here without any problem whatsoever because it would be culturally understandable and legible. We would know this is like a symbolic picture of a royal coronation. It's a picture or a vision of God taking his seat, resting by taking his seat as sovereign ruler over all the creation that he had just created. Uh, theologians uh, say things like God enthroned in his cosmic glory temple palace. I know that's super abstract, but I think it sounds cool, so I thought I would say it. Listen to Isaiah 66. He spells it out. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Meaning, the place of my rest is my royal throne in the cosmic temple palace of heaven. Uh, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And so it's this picture of God who has just created all things, ordered all things underneath him, putting man on the pinnacle as the pinnacle of all creation, as the kings of the earth, like we talked last time, ruling over all that he has created on the earth as his like under king. And God sits as the great king over all in perfection and in perfect ethical righteousness, uh, in the perfect ethical righteousness of heaven. Uh, and, and that's from creation through consummation, right? We think we're so time-bound when we think about God, you always, always think about God on a timeline, the same way that our lives are on a timeline. But if you think about, you know, there's an old trick about trying to understand eternity. If you think about it, us being on a timeline, you know, here's the creation, here's the consummation. There's a point above that that's semi, that's, that's stationary, that's always, it's the eternal now that God exists in uh, and that he always has existed in. And so that's this, this picture of this eternal now, this eternal day, as it's, as, it's, as it's said, where God is ruling in perfect righteousness over all of his creation, right? Perfect, perfect righteousness. Now, before the fall, that was great. Super great. Why? Because we were in fellowship with God. We were in intimate relationship with God. Uh, and that, and that, that Sabbath rest, when God sat down in his eternal realm, that was, that was, a, it, was a mod, it was modeled to Adam as saying, you too, you will work. You will work, do the work that I've given you to do in the garden. And the promise is that you too will enter into this glory, eternal glory rest with me. Uh, so it was put out as a promise, and it was wonderful, and there was intimate relationship and fellowship with God up until the day of the fall, and then there was a hard separation. God had to separate his perfect righteous rule and his perfectly righteous realm from earth, uh, otherwise it would just destroy it because God 
and perfect ethical righteousness cannot dwell together with sin without necessarily bringing judgment, right? Does that make sense? Okay. And so, uh, God's eternal day of rest where he is ruling uh, becomes a problem. Um, And that is because this is not the last time we hear about God enthroned in this royal rest. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see these, these points in time where God's eternal realm and rest and perfect rule kind of like punches into time and space. Uh, and, that's, and that's a scary thing. There's this thing in the, in the there's, a, there's a strange thing that occurs throughout the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. And by when we say the day of the Lord, what that means, it's it's God's Sabbath day, his eternal now that's coming to earth. And it's weird because it's always presented as a day, right? God's eternal Sabbath rest day. And yet it happens all the time. For example, creation, Genesis 2-5 talks about the day breaking into time and space. Uh, The fall itself is... uh, after the fall, Genesis 3, 9, the flood is depicted as the day of the Lord. God at Sinai, when God descended and the whole mountain and material world almost like began to dissolve in his holy presence is described as a picture of the day of the Lord. The flood, the same thing. Uh, the conquest of of the conquest of the Holy Land is talked about as a, the day of the Lord. When the, when the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdoms were, were overtaken by the Assyrians and taken into captivity, that is called the day of the Lord. When the southern kingdom is a, attacked and Jerusalem is sieged and all the southern kingdom goes into captivity into Babylon, that's called the day of the Lord. Uh, and Jesus, in his uh, in his prophetic word, talks about when the Romans come in 70 A.D. and destroy and flatten Jerusalem. He talks about that as being the day of the Lord. And so it's, it's the, that's what's strange about it. It's always talked about as one single day, and yet it happens, all the, it happens in all these different times throughout history. So from our perspective on the timeline, you're like, how is that even possible? How can the one day be 20 days? And the answer is it because it's because it's all it is all one day it's God's eternal day where he rules in righteousness and whenever he comes to make big moves on earth to bring about his the, the, the you know the history of redemption and his world and and the perfect ethical righteousness of it punches into our fallen world of time and space it's one day, but it's touching down like a tornado across the panorama of history until uh, the final day. What's common in all that? What's common in all that? The day, it's God, his presence, theophany. And what's also present in all those days? It's judgment. Because whenever God and ethical purity comes to earth, the ethical standards of heaven come and reign on earth and judgment necessarily happens. 
And that's why it's a problem. <laughs> that's why it's a problem. It's a big problem. God exists in perfect righteousness. And whenever he comes to touch down on earth or have contact with humans and human life and human space and time, there's necessary judgment because we are all sinners. Nobody can stand in that tornado. Uh, and that's why, man, that's why it's a big problem. The big problem is because all of those instances, everything I just said, every one of those instances, creation, fall, the flood, Sinai, the conquest, northern captivity, southern captivity, 70 AD, all of those were limited pictures, foreshadows of the big day when God's righteous rule and the reign of heaven come and touch down on earth permanently. And what does that happen? That happens at the return of the Lord Jesus. And everybody's culpable for that. That's why this, you know, the big picture of the Sabbath day is really scary. Uh, you know, that's where all those Bible verses come in about God. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, you know, no, who... You know, in, you know, who can stand in the presence of God? Nobody. Uh, it's a big problem when we think about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the permanent union of that realm with this realm. So someday, like it or not, the realm of heaven is going to break in permanently the physical world as we know it is going to dissolve in the holy presence of God. All of our hidden sins are going to be revealed. There'll be no more clever arguments. There'll be no more hypothesis. There'll be no more uh, arguments of deniable, you know, plausibility. Uh, everybody will be keenly aware that God is, is the God of heaven and earth and that Jesus Christ uh, is his son and the appointed judge over all. And we would be in big trouble if it were not for the fact that there's one other instance in the New Testament that's described as a day of the Lord. So let's look at that next. It happened sometime on or around Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, outside the northern gates of Jerusalem. Now let's talk about Jesus and the Sabbath day. Jesus and the Sabbath day. We, as we, Americans, we have this, we love to talk about working ourselves to death. It's like a cliche where you work so, you know, you're, you're just overwhelmed by your job or your work. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that with productivity culture and, uh, you know, life hacking and every, you know, just the pace, the unsustainable, crazy pace of life that we have developed in the West. Uh, brings in our world crazy burnout right people just become emotionally and literally physically incapable of continuing because they've just depleted uh they've just depleted all their neurotransmitters and dopamine and just fall apart that's what burnout really is burnout isn't like you're super tired it's it's a, it's a real physical chemical thing um however uh well, we, you know, we used to talk about working myself to death as a cliche. The Japanese have perfected it into an art form. There's literally a, a word called, uh, called karoshi culture, 
which translated roughly as overwork death. Where in Japanese culture, people are expected to work so hard and so long that even young people are either suffering heart failure or stroke or eventually become so overwhelmed of ever being able to accomplish the work necessary for them to do that they, they jump off the, off the roof of the company building. Uh, Miwa Sado, age 31, dies of a heart failure after logging 159 hours of overtime in a single month. Matsuru uh, Takahashi, 24 years old, when she jumps off the top of the building of her company uh, dormitory in Tokyo, 100 hours of overtime, she's surviving on two hours of sleep a night for months on her social media page couple weeks before she died, she was like, I feel like death would be bliss. Literally so overwhelmed with the amount of work that they are expected to do, the people become, are despairing and they die. Uh, and the same can be true with us, right? I mean, not just the, the undue pressure that we put upon ourselves, I mean, there's a lot. It's the work and the labor that is presented to us in this life, just the, the pace of Western culture, what it takes to be competitive for work, what it takes to be, you know, Nisa's a high school counselor, and what it takes to be competitive to get into a good school is, is nuts, nuts today. Uh, the, you know, 4.6, you know, grade point average minimum hundreds of hours of community service work, uh, you know, a, all AP classes. It's just crazy, the level of work and labor. And, and on top of that, there's the suffering that we all experience in the world. It's hard work. The temptation from sin is hard work. Uh, and if we look at salvation, if you view salvation as something that you need to work to achieve, when it comes clear that what you're talking about isn't like doing a little work here and there, it isn't even putting in 159 hours of overtime in, in good works to make sure that your, your balance is on the good side. It is an un, it, the Bible says to work and earn salvation by your good works requires utter perfection, absolute perfection every single day of your life. You can never break the law of God, not even once, if you break the law in one point, you are a lawbreaker and you've become defiled in your character and subject to the terror of the holy day. That's why Judgment Day is such bad news. Nobody's getting a sliding scale. There's no bell curve. Uh, if you expect to survive that day on what you have done, you need to have an absolute perfect record. And that is the kind of work that is, is unimaginably, the unimaginable despairing comes from, comes when you understand that. Martin Luther understood that. He used to sit in his cell, his monk cell, not his prison cell, his monk cell, <laughs> and, and just despair over his knowledge of the weight of his own sin and the inability of him ever, ever being able to overcome it or accomplish the, um, what kind of good work. And he was despairing. Judgment Day is bad news, which is why the cross is such good news. Let me give you some like typical 
biblical language when it talks about the day of the Lord first, okay? The Bible uses poetic imagery. It uses, uh, it uses specific imagery um, to impress upon us like the gravity and the destruction and the despair of the day of the Lord and uses terms like this. And we'll say, for example, Revelation 6, talking about the final day, it says, uh, when, he, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood. These poetic images talking about the dissolution of earth and judgment and the presence of God. And Peter on his speech, in a, on his, uh, his sermon on Pentecost, quotes Joel 2 for some strange reason. He says, Joel said, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Same language. Before the day of the Lord comes with great, that great and magnificent day. And then he abruptly turns the corner and says, and it shall come to pass, because of that day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What? Why is he talking about that? Same thing Paul quotes in Romans 10, talking about salvation by faith alone in Jesus, by confessing we trust Jesus and his work instead of our work, we're saved. Peter quotes Joel, talks about the terrible day of the Lord, and then says the immediate result of that is that salvation now is not based on how well you do the work, but it's on trusting in someone else's work and placing your faith in someone else's work, trusting that Jesus has done the work. And what is that work? Listen to Matthew's account of the crucifixion. He says two things happen. It's always confused me. I was like, what is this all about? It's like God just flexing here or, or what? But it says two, two things happened, right? There was from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the night. The sun went dark. And then what happens? Behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split that physical dissolution of the, of the material world and the presence of God coming in judgment. It's a straight up day of the Lord judgment language used to describe what's happening on the cross. What is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us what Isaiah said 750 years before it happened. That on the cross, Jesus was being pierced for our transgressions. He was being crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have all gone astray and turned everyone his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What that means is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus has won for us our Sabbath rest. He took upon himself the work of perfect ethical righteousness that we could never do. Jesus never sinned. He completed and fulfilled 
every righteous requirement of the law for us as our representative. And then he went on the cross and all of God's fury and wrath and judgment that was meant for us, God brought it down upon Jesus. Uh, So that when we think now about the final day of judgment, the only thing that's left in that for us is the sure and certain uh, promise of entering into that eternal rest that Adam lost, the first Adam lost. That's all that's left for us. All the judgment, all the fire, all the smoke, all the blood, all the horrific, earth-shattering, you know, material world, universe, collapsing language was all poured out on Jesus who took all of that for us. You know, we're still under a lot of labor in this life. We're still under the labor of suffering. Suffering is hard work. We're under the labor of temptation, of sin. That's hard. We're under the label, labor of broken relationships. We're under the labor of suffering through disease or watching loved ones suffer through disease. Everything about this life is hard. But what this means for the day of the Lord to have visited in the Old Testament, when it says God visited, that's always bad, right? It's not like your, it's not like your Aunt Glenda coming over to visit you. When God visits his people in the Old Testament, it's, it's chaotic judgment. And, and for God to have just for visited Jesus with his wrath and judgment on the cross means that it gives us hope that in the midst of all of the hard labor that, we have to, or that we're engaged in, we know that it's not forever and we know that we can, always, we can rest on Jesus. We can rest from incessantly trying to be good enough to, to earn our spot in heaven. And we can undergo and, and, and endure the suffering the hard work of suffering and the hard work of temptation by sin, knowing that God has given us his spirit and that all those things are being overcome and they will finally be overcome. And as hard as this is for us to even contemplate because we've never experienced anything like it, we will live in a world where there is no suffering. There's just joy and fulfillment We're going to live in a world where there is no temptation to sin. Sign me up for that, man. Can you tell me? Um, We're going to live in a world where there's no broken relationships, where there's no disease, where every hard thing about this life will have been dismantled and done away with. And Jesus says what? Come to me, all you who are weary and I will give you rest. What is he talking about? He'll like, you can like take a nap on his watch. He's saying, I am doing the work that will earn you passage into the eternal Sabbath rest of the perfect realm of God. 
so that that day is no longer a day of terror, but only a day of hope and promise and joy that we look forward to. You ever wonder why we celebrate Sabbath on Sunday? Why? There's a lot of, there's some Christian denominations that are all, Sabbath day is Saturday. You must celebrate it on Saturday. It never says, where does it say in the New Testament that you should, that it changed to Sunday? And the answer is Luke 24, among other places, where Jesus celebrates Christian worship, the Lord's Supper, the preaching and the teaching of the apostolic word on Sunday. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Israelites worked, 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 promise of rest was ahead of them. In the New Testament, it's symbolic. We've been given our rest. We've been given salvation. It's ours. It's a present possession. We are all able to and called to and allowed to rest in Jesus right now. And then from that position, then we go out into the world and we work not for our self-preservation, but we work to enjoy the earth, to glorify God, to give him thanks, to worship him, to, uh, to express our gratitude and love for what he's done for us. It's symbolic. That's why. Uh, and so there, look, we went from big, kind of down to medium, and now let's talk about like how the Sabbath day interacts, intersects with us. What is it, what, what's, what's going on here on Sundays? Why are we doing this? And the third part, last part, is our Sabbath, our Sabbath day of rest, which is the eternal, which is the foretaste of the eternal promise. Remember, that's all that's, that's, all that's left for us. The day of judgment is the, fo- is the promise of eternal joy. They, um, you ever wonder why we still have a seven-day week with all the cultural dismantling of Christianity that's going on? We still, forever, we still have a seven-day week, and there's no good reason for that. In the French Revolution, they tried to make a 10-day week. It seemed to make more sense to them, and it just fell apart. It utterly failed. Um, <laughs> I just read this guy, this blogger last night was making this case for a 10-day work week. I'm sure he knew about the you know, French Revolution failed experience, but you know, he had this whole new scheme of, uh, of a work week that sounded you know, good. You got three days on, one day off, three days on, three days off. Um, made everything seem to make more sense, but for whatever reason, there's a seven-day week worldwide. Uh, and I think that's because God not only created in time, but he created with time. He created the pace uh, of life on earth and the structure of time and the structure of our week. God created that and he's preserving it. It's a creation ordinance. Um, And so, you know, when people, usually when people talk to me about the Sabbath day, like going to church, they they come and they say, so, okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean we have to go to church? (laughs) I mean, we're like, oh, we have to go to church on Sunday. Is that what the fourth commandment, or the, that what the commandment means? Keep the Sabbath day holy. And uh, it's such the wrong question, man. It's just such the wrong question. It shouldn't even be like that. Like, what do we have to do? We should look at the Sabbath in terms of like, what do we get to do? And this is like just a short list, right? Jesus said again, man, 
was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. God, <laughs> think about what it says about us that God has to actually command us to rest. <laughs> what does that say? What would be, what's the tendency? To work ourselves to death, right? And so, Sabbath, the Sabbath day is, is it's a physical rest. It's a creation of a sustainable pace of life. It creates emotional and spiritual margin that you can then use and, uh, to be a blessing to other people. Uh, it creates a sustainable pace in life. God said, Everybody needs it one day a week when you chill out and you just rest. You need that. So, he's, you know, God is, doesn't care just about our souls. He cares about our bodies. All of it is created. He cares about our whole being. Um, but it's so much more than that, right? God is, it's the, our Sabbath rest. When we come to the Sabbath and we worship and for the rest of the day, it's a spiritual reset and remembrance of what is really real. Like, this is what's mind-bending about God's big Sabbath day is it's, it's invisible, it's an abstract theological concept, and yet God's eternal realm is the real. That is the real world. That is the... That's the real world, and we are a quarantined temporary shadow of that. Uh... But doesn't feel like that in the middle of it, right? I mean, you we're all going to leave here today. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning. Your boss is going to start yelling at you. Uh, you know, all your childhood trauma is going to come out. You're going to start thinking that you're going to be okay if you can just afford this new thing. Uh, you know, and then you're going to get into it with the closest people that you, the people that you love the most. You're going to, you know, have emotional or relational tension with them, and and the the physical world that we live in, and and then the fallenness of our natures is going to be, seem to be the realest thing there is. And so God says, at least once a week, come here and you reset. And you remember, the heaven is real, this is the shadow. You are not a person on earth. Your identity at its core is that you belong to the family of God in heaven. And that remembrance gives us refreshment, right? It, Sabbath is when we come to hear God's covenant renewed over us, right? We had in our small group a couple weeks ago, we were, I, the first question I asked is, what's your favorite heretical idea about God? <laughs> Meaning, what is the idea that you have about God that you know is wrong, but it just is, it's just persistent. It won't go away. And it was, everybody was like, that God's mad at me, that God's disappointed in me, that I'm not, he doesn't think I'm measuring up, that he loves those super Christians over there more than he loves me. It was all this image and this vision of God as like the disciplinarian father who's like, okay, you're part of the family, but you know, stay in the back room. And we come here once a week, every single week, and God says, You're not part of my family because of who you are. You're part of God's family. We are part of God's family because of who he is, because he's chosen to love us. And his covenant is a promise that that's not gonna change. <laughs> Even though we forget it every week. A Sabbath rest, our, our Sabbath day is 
it's the spiritual power from God to sustain us through life, through the other six days. We come and receive the Lord's Supper, and God promises that as we commune with Jesus in that, we are feeding on the life of Christ in such a way that we are strengthened and able to remember these things and able to be uh, part of that heavenly realm even as we walk through the corridors of the shadow. The Sabbath is our opportunity to come and participate in the heavenly worship with the angels. Hebrews 12 says that we are, even though we can't see it, we are being lifted by the power of the Spirit. We are being lifted up into the heavenly places and participating in the grander worship of heaven. Uh, and Sabbath, finally, Sabbath is our expression of our gratitude for all of these things that God has given us. We come here to express our gratitude and our love for God who has done all these things for us and given us these sure and certain promises that we can rest in and cling to uh, that allow us to go through the suffering of this world uh, and look forward to these little glimpses that we see, these little pictures and symbols of the heavenly reality to be grateful for those things. And gratitude creates joy. Those are all things that we get, right? Those are all things that happen to us that are uh, by coming to church on Sunday and by setting aside the day, setting aside our regular business and focusing on the worship of God, enjoying his good gifts, uh, enjoying family and friendships and doing things that are restful and regenerating and fun, all that is blessed by God. And it's a blessing for us. It's not something you have to do, you know? I, talk, I took my son, Robbie, he just played uh, Little League Baseball for first season. And he's stoked on baseball. He's, pretty, he's a pretty athletic little guy. This coach voted him, coach, team voted him bravest kid on the team. Because he, he didn't care about getting hit by the pit of a wild, crazy wild, you know, second grade pitcher, right? <laughs> he didn't care about getting hit by the ball. He was like, I'm going to get a free base. He would just lean into it a little bit, you know? <laughs> Anyways, he loved baseball, loved baseball so much. He was like all about baseball. And then he heard, you know, and he's learning about major league baseball. And I took him to the Padres game uh, last week. And he was, we're in this, you know, giant arena to him. I can't even imagine, you know, I remember when I was a kid how big, the sports arena or the, you know, the Jack Murphy Stadium was, and he was in the presence of like everything that he loved in life and, on the, and the people that were the, you know, the best players in the sport and playing the game at the highest possible level. He was literally in, just in the mix of everything that he loves. And, he, and we left and I was like, how do you like it? And he was like, it was the best day of my life. You know, that's what we should say. We should come to church on Sunday and we should see all that and hear all that. We should have physical rest, an emotional margin, a sustainable pace and life from it. We should get spiritually reset, remember what's really real, remember that what we have in Christ is eternal and untarnishable. It will never fade. It's being guarded for us by God in heaven, unassailable, and we come here and we see these little foretastes of it and we participate in, the, in, 
in, in communion, we hear all these promises preached over us and we fellowship with one another and with God, we should leave here every day, every week, and we should say, man, that was the best day of my life. Every week. Why would you want to miss that? Why would you want to miss any of that? So, I don't even put it in tense of, this is what you have to do. But this is what we get to do because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath, what you've given us in it. Not just the rest for our bodies and our souls, but the eternal rest that's promised for us at the end of this age. And not just that, but that that day of your coming, when the holy terror of your righteous judgment touches down on earth for us, it will be nothing more than the celebration of Jesus' victory and the transition of us out of death and into life. And so we look forward to it with joy. Lord, we pray that since our, our future is so certain, and since you've given us this sustainable pace in life, that we might be able to use uh, the spiritual health and the rest that we receive And spend some of that on investing in the lives of those people that you've placed in our path so that we might share the beauty of the Lord Jesus with them. And through that, you would bring all of your people into your kingdom, Lord. Help us to be lights in the world. Help us to believe your word uh, and to be as grateful for it as we ought to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.